Available as a cloud service, Red Hat Trusted Software Supply Chain provides a DevSecOps framework to create applications more securely. Vincent Dannon is the VP of Product Security at Red Hat, and he joins us in this episode. Red Hat has been a secure open source software provider for a long time. We discuss how the Red Hat Trusted Software Supply Chain product allows enterprises to adopt DevSecOps practices successfully, safely, consume open source code and third-party dependencies, and build security into the software development lifecycle. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jordi Mon Companies. Check the show notes for more information on Jordi's work and where to find him. Vincent, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You are a VP of Product Security at Red Hat, correct? That's right. Yep. So what brings you to Open Source Summit North America in beautiful, gorgeous Vancouver with this, uh, the listeners won't be able to uh, see this, but the weather is absolutely glorious. It's, it is wonderful. Uh, the honest answer yeah. is the shortest flight I can ever take to a conference. Because <laughs> I'm just across the mountains, hour and a half, it's great. Um, but secondly, I love open source. I'm here to support what we're doing for Red Hat. I uh, gave a keynote this morning, uh, talked with a few, a few people, some customers. Um, so I'm just, I'm just here to support Red Hat and support open source. Nice, well done. Um, so you, you work in a specific area of security. I think I read from one of your articles in, in, in opensource.com that uh, there's a difference between the traditional infosec people I think you might call them computational security. I can't remember. Operational. Operational security. Yeah. And you yourself and your type, professional type, which are um, uh, product security people. Could you explain what you mean by those two areas and what's the difference between them? Yeah, I mean, um, InfoSec or operational security, I'd look at as the people that are security operators, uh, monitoring environments, monitoring systems, uh, responding to incidents. Uh, they're the ones who basically make sure that you and your environment and your company are safe and secure kind of from the, the information that you're using. The product security side are the folks who are actually building the software, um, or at least not necessarily building the software. I mean, we have engineers for that, uh, but they're making sure that the security considerations mm. are taken into account as you're building the software. So, you know, think about like secure by design, secure by default. Um, what kind of, you know, maybe some compliance regulatory considerations you might have, uh, making sure that your build systems are safe and sound, uh, that sort of thing. You've so far avoided it, so maybe it has been intentional or not. If it has been intentional, you probably maybe feel uncomfortable by describing your work as DevSecOps. Uh, <laughs> no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it DevSecOps. Okay. Um, what would be the difference then? Uh, DevSecOps are the folks who are actually doing development. Okay. They're doing the operational work. And they're also doing like the security monitoring and oh, remediation. Wow. Uh, one of the things I actually forgot to mention earlier, which is interesting because it's the biggest part of what we do, <laughs> is uh, remediating security vulnerabilities. Did, did you do that on purpose? Did not do that on purpose. <laughs> um, so effectively, we, for all of the portfolio products at Red Hat, we look at Anything new vulnerabilities are out there, um, and we figure out how to apply a patch to it. Uh, we rate it. Uh, we determine whether or not it affects our products. Wow! So we do all of that response work. My God, I just uh, interviewed a, a few moments ago Eric Brew, and he mentioned the data point that is re uh, relevant to this. Uh, at the beginning, uh, Kubernetes had twelve thousand dependencies, 
And one of the things he was most proud of was that the, the whole project, the community behind it, has reduced it today to something around 7,000, which still is a big dependency graph, right? Yep. And list. RHEL, or the, the whole uh, Red Hat portfolio, do you have a rough estimate of how, how many dependencies it has? Um, that, off the top of the No, no, of course, I, I don't expect like this, but there is something around. But it's a magnitude. It's upwards of 40,000 components across the portfolio, like distinct components. Yes. Um, and then when you look at the number of um, versions of components across all the different versions of software that we also support, you know, we can have, a, I'll pick on OpenSSL for an example. Yes. We might have four or five different versions of OpenSSL across the portfolio. RHEL 8 to 9 to 7. Um, I think there's some stuff in, in JBoss because it's also not just Linux-based, so we have a version of OpenSSL there for wow. Windows, um, things like that. So there's a lot of different versions of the same component, and we kind of have to pay attention to it all. My goodness, you all. We're busy. The scope of your domain. It, oh, my God. I guess, I guess yeah, I'm thinking of <laughs> stress and being woken up in the middle of the night. I guess the worst nightmare of a professional IQ is the solar winds uh, uh, comp compromise, right? The, yep. that, that type of it. Could you could you describe how a supply chain uh, uh, attack like that, and, and specifically how how the build system? I mean, as far as it's public and you know, uh, went went about. Yeah, I mean, uh, for solar winds specifically, the problematic part was the access to the build system where an attacker could inject code or change code that then gets delivered to the end users. Uh, the problem was not being able to detect those changes as they were being introduced or having access that prevented those changes from being introduced. And then um, that code was built with the unauthorized changes, signed, yeah. so the customers trusted it as coming from SolarWinds and then deployed um, for whoever decided to do an upgrade to the latest version of SolarWinds that had this backdoor in it. Um, they're the ones who are compromised as a result. So the compromise initially was SolarWinds, which in and of itself, not unique because, I mean, companies are breached all the time, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but what was unique was the fact that they could target the build system and actually make changes to it that then propagated further to other, to other companies. That's exactly, that was surprised me. I, it's obviously a part of the of the whole software world and the system, and it's obviously vulnerable, just like any other bits. One would presume that internal tooling is, you know, um, well isolated and well kept, but it is vulnerable still and so forth. But yep. before we actually move on to how vendors like SolarWinds, but others are uh, releasing this information and how they should do it. And also let's move on to what are the tools that currently exist to prevent this, not necessarily solar winds, but in general, what are the, the the checks and balances that a build system can introduce to uh, detect these things? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is monitoring, right? And logging everything, uh, looking for anomalies, anomaly detection. Um, there's plenty of log analysis tools out there that are useful. Um, so that's number one, like if you can't detect it, you don't know it's there. Uh, on a preventative side, doing things like proper authentication, authorization, uh, identity management, those sorts of things, really crucial uh, to 
reduce the amount of access to those build systems to, uh, you know, in the security world, we call a principle of least privilege, right? Like if you need to do it, you should have access to do it. If you don't need to do it, you should have no access to it. Mm -hmm. So enforcing that, uh, doing the logging, and then just making sure that as your, because your build system is made up of software as well, make sure that that software, if there are patches available for it, apply the patches. Right. Those are probably the three key things uh, that are like, there isn't a specific software you can say, if you do this yeah. or use this software, everything's magical and it's going to work. But those simple practices of logging and monitoring, um, applying patches for that software, and then just good, good hygiene around authentication and authorization. What about within the build process of an application? What kind of uh, analysis, uh, scanners and so forth? Do you recommend are the basic ones, and could you describe them? Yeah, I mean, you have your SAST or your static application security testing, your dynamic application security testing, your... Uh, How do those two work, for example? Would you be able to describe them? Yeah, like uh, dynamic testing is actually putting the software within paces. Uh, maybe it's some fuzzing, for example, like feeding it to bad data and seeing how it responds, uh, making sure that it operates the way that it's supposed to. Uh, for static application, uh, you're looking at like how the code is structured. Can we find any you know buffer overruns or or other coding issues within the code? We'll scan the code for that. Uh, when we're looking at like composition analysis, like what are the dependencies? Um, we're looking for do we include any dependencies that are vulnerable, and we're actually including that in our build. So there's a number of different tools that can be used for that. Um, and then beyond that, you're just basically looking at like What's the mechanism for ensuring that, you know, the code is committed someplace? So the proponent of Git, you know, Git logs, Git history, uh, you can look at all of that and it's got good authentication for that. So a good place to store that code so you can actually see what changes are being made to it and who made those changes. So we thought to touched upon two of the three things that I want to touch upon that are mechanisms, not all of them, but mechanisms that register log information so that you can detect anomalies, weird patterns, weird behaviors, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, or, or buffer overflows, all these things. And the third one is actually, in a di at a different level, are S-bombs, right? Because in my view of the world, um, they are incredibly powerful tools uh, that map, in a way, packages and the relationship between them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so. I presume you're a strong proponent of them, but you've said uh, that you're, they are not a silver bullet. So as the SPDX marketing manager here, I feel extremely offended and nope. directly attacked. Nope. Uh, <laughs> no, but truly. So do you, do you see them also as a way to surface information and therefore uh, catalyze the reaction and the response to those? Well, 100%. I mean, if you look at something like um, the log for shelf, vulnerability, for example. One of the hardest parts for people to deal with in that situation was where was it, right? It was hidden in a number of different places because it was so ubiquitous, it was being used by so many other applications in so many different places. Without an S-bomb, you don't know where those places are. So when you're looking at, there's this vulnerability, I know I have it somewhere, I need to remediate it, how do I find it? That's the part that the S-bomb really plays to truly help, you know, the, the operations people and the developers figure out where is this thing I need to update. I've heard on the news, this thing is really scary. I need to find it. My bosses are yelling at me. And now I'm hunting 
there manually through all this stuff looking for it. And SBOM really helps you um, respond to it quickly because you have that information at your fingertips. The hotel I'm staying at just across the street here um, has a diagram of the building itself in the lobby. And I presume this is for firefighters that when it's an emergency occurs, they can immediately dash into the lobby, have a really quick uh, description of the, how the building is structured and how to access the different floors. And therefore, if they know where this thing is, uh, they know how to access it. So in a way, I, I, I like that that sort of like metaphor to describe what the nest bomb is. Uh, actually, I hadn't heard that one before. I like that one. Okay. Yeah. No, that's good. You, you, you're good. I'm good. It's copy left. Yes, you can use it. Awesome. <laughs> So, but yes, but let's face the the reality of it, right? It's not a silver bullet, as you said. What in your mind, and you've gone, you've described this in a few articles. Um, what are the expect the over optimistic expectations that public institutions, but many others have on SBOMs that you find that are maybe yeah not so realistic? I think the biggest one is this notion of an SBOM should also have vulnerability information. You can't. Right. Um, and for me, if I look at it, most software doesn't change often, right? There's schedules, there's releases, there's patches. Um, so producing a new SBOM every time you do an update, which is the right thing to do, um, happens maybe on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever basis. Vulnerabilities pop up anytime. And as we kind of look at the landscape today, uh, compared to, you know, 20 odd years ago when I started, there's like vulnerabilities every hour versus every month, right? Which someone used to. No one wants to build an SBOM every other hour, right? It's hard to consume, it's hard to produce, it gets really expensive. So if you have something like um, your list of ingredients, your SBOM, right? The, the way that I kind of describe it is an SBOM is a list of ingredients. Yeah. Then you have the information where the some ingredient is bad for you like this thing that i bought from the grocery store has a list of ingredients but i can't tell if it's actually good for me or bad for me i trust that it's good for me because the grocery store is signed the grocery store or the uh the creator of that pizza or piece of food or whatever it is doesn't go to the grocery store and give them little labels to go and stick on which package mm. to say uh there's a recall the sausage is bad or whatever right um would you have a separate recall list you know, you as a consumer have to be aware of like, you know, Canada here, there's a list, these foods are being recalled yeah. for these reasons, these lot numbers, et cetera. And it's your job to look at that list and look at that food and go, oh, yeah, I can't eat that. I have to throw it away. Or I'm at the store and went, oh, I thought about that. I'm not going to buy it. That's what I see as a distinction. SBOMs is that ingredient list. And then you have like oval data or CVRF or CSAF or uh, VAX or all of these other types of vulnerability um data sources that is that recall list and when you kind of marry the two together that's when you have this really potent i know exactly what i have mm. from my SBOM, and i have the up to the up to the minute information provided by my vendor that says these things are vulnerable and if i can kind of correlate the two then i have a really good picture of i have that thing that this list is saying is vulnerable yeah. and i know where to find it before we move on to um Exactly. To describe this relationship of communicating vulnerabilities, who should do it and so forth, and the approach you should take to that, right? Um, um, I, I've got a question for you because you mentioned it. So, so 
the explosion in the number of vulnerabilities is patterned, right? You just said it, I think, uh, back in the day was one a month. Now it's every minute. Is that a function of software eating the world and software being pervasive everywhere? And therefore, it, it has always been vulnerable. It, it's now present everywhere. Therefore, every piece of hardware in which it's running has a vulnerability. Or is there anything in new modern software development that makes it specifically prone to introducing vulnerability? Because one would say, one would argue, well, we don't program in C++ anymore. Well, not so much. Mm -hmm. Although I've got controversial opinion about that, but anyway. And we program in memory save uh, languages. So what is your informed opinion about the explosion in the number of vulnerabilities? I think it's just the amount of software that's Okay. Right. I think that back in the back in the day when I started, there were like the new novel vulnerabilities were coming up because oh wow, we never thought about this or this type of vulnerability. And so the, then you kind of play uh, catch up. You have all the software, you find a certain class of vulnerability, you're like, wow, this is interesting. Now we're gonna go look everywhere and oh my god, there's all this stuff that we have to fix, right? Now when it comes to today, I think it's just the complexity of software, right? Because we're asking software to do a lot. Yeah that we never asked it to do before. There's also a lot more software. I mean, if you think about it, back in the day there was, uh, and I'll discount open source for a second, there were software companies that built software. The Adobe's, the Microsoft's, the IBM's, all of those people, right? Um, then you have open source and it comes along and now it's a whole bunch of people are creating software. But if you look at it today, everybody is creating software. And they're not even like software shops. You look at banks, they, they have engineering teams that rival the size of what we would consider regular software developers. You have people writing apps to buy pizza on your phone, like, and, and you know, good chain here, Pizza 73 in Canada, right? They're not a software development company, but they develop software, right? So everybody's doing it. We're seeing it everywhere. And I think that that increase is what is causing a lot of the, like, the, hey, there's more vulnerabilities because there's more software. I don't think open source maintainers or developers of any stripe are making poorer decisions and just writing bad software, unless maybe they're using early betas of some AI type, uh, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Who knows? Just a speculation. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, it's, I don't think we're doing anything worse necessarily. I think there's just more software. We're yeah. adding more of it. It's more complicated. So then the reality is that vulnerabilities are everywhere. I mean, I don't want to convey an apocalyptic um, uh, vision of, of the software world, but it's it's true. They're, they're, you have to expect them. Just uh, again, I was interviewing Eric. You, if you manage a distributed system, you have to expect uh, faults in the uh, network, pods going down, etc. It is a given. Uh, in this way, in in the security side of things, vulnerabilities will show up. So, yep. what is, in your opinion? your the correct approach for this and if you could also portray the more traditional ways or other ways of approaching this i mean i think the biggest part and some people think it's a little controversial but i think it's actually necessary is education right how do you actually write secure code um well, i don't think that that's necessarily taught in school right maybe it's started to change i don't know but usually it's just about this is how you write code this is what code is used for et cetera, et cetera. It's not like, these are the things you should be thinking about as you're writing code so that it, you know, fails, cl fail closed rather than fail open, you know, uh, those sorts of kind of design mechanics. 
Can I interject there for a minute? Because yesterday in the OpenSSF summit that was introduced by two members of the White House, if I'm not, uh, if I remember properly, CISA. CISA, one member of CISA, but there was a member from a newly created, uh, I think a month ago, um, cybersecurity agency within the White House. But regardless, from the, the representative of the uh, Amer American government. And they have this, what is becoming this main, and it's related to what you were elaborating on, what is becoming a mainstream, mainstream opinion about what I just mentioned a minute ago, uh, C++, just to meant to be completely clear, and, mm -hmm. and, and um, programming languages that allow you to well, go so le low level that you can mess about with memory, allocation, pointers, and stuff like that. Yep. Were you referring to that? I mean, or where do you stand in that debate of, because I thought that her approach, and again, what's becoming mainstream is that C++ should be deprecated completely, and uh, only memory safe languages namely Rust, but I'm sure there are others, should be used for this. And yet I think that that A is not realistic. If I'm not wrong, around 20% of the code in the world, and especially for critical infrastructure, is made in C++. That's not going anywhere. And substituting that is very difficult. You won't get, well, experienced uh, Rust engineers with 20 years of experience, just like you get in C++ and so forth. So anyway. Well, connecting what we, with what you were saying, and I know you're not a C++ programmer yourself or Rust or well, maybe you are, but um, nope. what was your opinion? Of, can you connect this idea that you were describing about education and how to foster good uh, security practice at the educational level and maybe connect it with this idea of, well, should we use memory and save uh, uh, and powerful languages like C++? Um, I think there's a place for C and C++. It certainly isn't going anywhere. Um, I've heard the the memory safe argument a lot. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with it, but that's from a creating new software perspective. Okay. If I'm going to create something new, I should be considering, you know, Rust or Python or some something else, right? Not necessarily going to C or C plus plus. So in school, yeah, I mean it's been forever since I've been there. Um, I don't know exactly what they're teaching, but presumably if they're teaching C and C++ foundations as uh, programming languages, they could alternatively turn to things like Rust, which is becoming increasingly popular, does have things like memory safety, um, or things like Python, because it's still really high on the, you know, favorite oh, yeah. programs, oh, yeah. or things like Java, what have you, right? Um, the problem that I see with this push for memory safe languages is who's going to rewrite everything that already exists, right? If, if the, if somebody, if some, I'm going to pick up politicians here. Mm -hmm. If some politician decides five years down the road, we're not going to award any contracts to any companies that haven't delivered everything to us in Rust, uh, they're going to have a really hard time finding yeah. the software that they're looking for, right? So we have to kind of take that pragmatic approach. Like maybe we can build new things in Rust and similar languages, and not sit there and disparage the old stuff, which some of it, yeah, it's written in C and C++, but I would say quite trustworthy, right? Not a ton of vulnerabilities. And the other thing that we have to consider in all of this as well, um, and this is from 20 years of doing response, right? These uh, companies, projects, maintainers, whatever, who actually respond well, and they apply a patch to the software that's found to be vulnerable, we don't necessarily give them high fives or kudos for doing it. Yeah. Right. I would much rather take 
uh, software that was like from memory unsafe language, but had a really good response by the community and maintenance around it to say, I can trust that because they know what they're doing and they're on top of it. Humans make mistakes all the time. Um, but if they kind of own up to those and respond quickly to them, then that is going to garner my trust more than just like, oh, it's a memory safe language. Therefore, it's, I mean, again, going to the silver bullet thing. Yeah. Farms. Yeah. Rust is not a silver bullet. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't solve every problem. It just solves one type yeah. of problem. I don't mean to be promoting the episode that I just recorded with Eric Brewer from Google, but he mentioned uh, he's now a strong advocate of curation. What he describes as a the role of a security uh, institution, whether it's a person, maybe the maintainer of open source project or an independent that is funded, properly funded and supported to maintain, uh, to, to patch uh, popular uh, open source packages, right? Again, it, has, it doesn't have to be the maintainer. It's usually a burden for that person or group of people, but it has to be properly funded and supported and work hard in hand with the maintainer. And he, when I asked him for a good example of curation that is taking place today, he mentioned Red Hat. He said, well, you know what? Um, Red Hat delivers products that may or may not contain vulnerabilities. What you get from Red Hat is the comp, the, the comp, not the compromise, the commitment from them to patch it. You pay for that and you get that guarantee. So, so yes, uh, this, this, um, curation role is fundamental. I really appreciate that Red Hat does that for, at the, at the huge level that they cover with, uh, all the portfolio. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, let's go on, move back to vulnerability. So you've got this, you, you, you propose the risk-based approach to, uh, vulnerabilities. Could you describe more traditional and in your opinion, less effective ways of, uh, managing vulnerabilities and then go on to describe risk-based? Yeah. Um, I think the call it traditional, yeah, I call it annoying. Uh, the way that people tend to look at vulnerabilities right now is. Uh, they just look at a list of CVs and go fix them. They're present and I want them gone. It's kind of like this auditor type approach where it's saying like, there's a whole bunch of CVs, there's little empty boxes behind them. I want you to tick every box for me. Oftentimes when we're, I call them uh, CV shopping lists. Okay. Right. So if I'm given a CV shopping list, I'm like, okay, a lot of these things are, you know, low impact, moderate impact, things that I would consider don't matter. Tell me why it matters to you. And more often than not, the answer is, well, it's on my list and I want it to go away. I'm like, well, do you even use that? Like, is this even impactful for you in any way? Well, I don't know. I don't need to know where it is. It's just, it's on my list. And it has to come off. That is kind of the, uh, I call it the accountant style checkbox auditor based way of doing security response, which I think is completely ineffective and very expensive. Uh, the approach that we take is, uh, again, like you said, the risk-based approach. Mm -hmm. We, we look at every vulnerability, we assess it as it affects our products. So how we built it, um, how it's used within the, within the particular product. And then what we do is based on that assessment, we, uh, as part of our lifecycle policy, we say we fix all criticals, we fix all importance. We opportunistically fix moderate vulnerabilities, right? So if I'm, if uh, one of the engineering teams is 
updating one piece of software, you know, to fix some random bug. They look and see, oh, there's one or two CVs that are still outstanding for it that are moderate or low. We're going to go fix it at the same time, right? That's kind of the opportunistic approach. But when we're looking at exploitation rates, mm -hmm. which we started doing the last couple of years, the exploitation rates for critical and high are a little higher as we would expect, because if I can actually exploit that vulnerability, I actually get some tangible value out of it. So it's worth trying. If I'm trying to exploit like a low or a moderate vulnerability, I might not get very far or very much. So most attackers are going to be like, hey, probably doesn't matter, right? Now, of course, there's, you can use these to, you know, get a certain type of access chain with another vulnerability to get more access and where there's chaining vulnerabilities and stuff. But stepping outside of that complexity part, by and large, critical and important vulnerabilities are the ones that are going to be exploited and the ones that actually have impact. So those are the ones that we're going to fix first, right? If, we're, if we have, like everybody, we have finite resources, we're fixing the things uh, that have the most impact and are most likely to be exploited. What we started doing as we were observing this is we realized about 10% of critical vulnerabilities were known to be actively exploited. You mentioned CISA earlier, so we use our known exploit, uh, exploited vulnerabilities list. Uh, we kind of map to that and go, oh, okay, that thing is critical, uh, and has an exploit, we've already fixed it, we don't have to worry about it. Um, if something pops up that's like a moderate or low that is being actively exploited, we treat it like a critical vulnerability and we'll fix it, but if we hadn't opportunistically fixed it before. Hmm. So what we're really doing is we're going, okay, we're, we're judging these things based on the risk posed to our customers or end users, and if something is actually risky or has a high probability of being exploited, we're going to fix those things. The last year we had it was around 1,100 moderate CVEs. Two of them had known active exploitation. So whatever, 1,100, I think it was 1,086. So 10, 1,084 moderate vulnerabilities that we would have engineering teams derive patches, build, test, deploy, and a customer has to also do their own testing and deployment and, and all of these things. That's uh, analogous to how I described it to my wife. <laughs> and... She said, well, you know, what does that actually look like? And I said, imagine updating your iPhone three times a day. Yeah. And she's like, oh, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, no, you don't. Nobody does. But everyone who's asking for that based on the, the checklist is saying, I am willing to update my iPhone. My thousands or tens of thousands of iPhones every day, three times a day, because I don't like seeing a, something with a CVE in front of it on this list, which to me is truly expensive. The other point that I add there too is one of the things about open source that makes it so attractive is the speed of innovation, speed of development. You know, I can basically build something very, very easily and cheaply based on open source, right? Uh, so that's a lot of value for me. You also get all the advances of everybody who's contributing in those communities and features for value. I can easily and cheaply obtain that. You're basically cutting all of that off. If you want to fix every single vulnerability, you, you cut off that, that type of innovation, which is one of the wonderful things that we yeah. expect from open source. Yeah. All the focus and attention, and now we're seeing more regulation and burden as being put on maintainers that stifles that innovation. Mm -hmm. That speed of innovation we've enjoyed for the last 20 years drops dramatically because now there's a ton of overhead. And, and quite frankly, there's going to people, be people who say, I don't want to do it. Yeah. It's just not. I'm not getting paid to do this. You know, my day job, I enjoy doing this work. But now you've made it really, really 
painful and expensive for me to do it. I don't want to do it. But that's where this role of curator, I think, would be great. Again, properly funded, supported, and mm -hmm. but yeah, yeah, it's definitely a burden, especially in some geographies and with some regulations uh, that are pretty unaware of how this innovation, the whole ecosystem works. It's a shame. It is. <laughs> so the last thing you've touched upon, one of the um, known exploited vulnerability databases that you guys tap from, mm -hmm. uh, the CISO one. The last thing I want to touch upon is that precisely, or that topic of who should be, when and how communicating our vulnerabilities. I, before we joined this conversation, I was a strong proponent of having a centralized sort of like canonical one source of truth for this, namely NVD, for example, but I, I thought it was honest. And yet you have a very different opinion. So let us know what is it in your, obviously you, you're the professional yeah. in, in this case, not me. No, no, I, I definitely have a different opinion. I mean, the NVD has, has its place. It's a good centralized piece of our database of information. Um, and it's great for some applications. The problem with NVD, as I see it, is it's very broad. And when you're looking at every single vulnerability and they assign one single score to it, you have a piece of open source that is used across multiple ecosystems in multiple ways um, and multiple platforms and it can be built in different ways. Right? It's not like I'm getting this binary from, from Microsoft to run on Windows and only Microsoft has built it one particular way for that particular operating system. We're talking about something like Apache or OpenSSL. Everybody can compile it their own way. They can take pieces in and out of it as they wish. It's open source. Um, and then they deliver it on whichever platform, whether it's mm. Mac, Windows, or Linux. You can't assign open source like that a single score for everything. And NVD does, and they do it based on the worst possible look. Now, if I'm looking at the way that Red Hat builds software, right? A, we have Linux. B, we have a lot of hardening technologies in our compilers. We turn these flags on that, you know, prevent like stack smashing, buffer overflows, things like that. Um, those things don't get accounted for and good score. So while I think that a, a universal database is interesting and is potentially useful from like a research perspective, what Red Hat has done for the last number of years is really try to provide as much information as possible for every CVE that affects our products. Mm -hmm. We display it proudly for everybody to see, right? We even contrast our CVSS scores with NVDs okay. directly on the page so that any customer or any person can look at it and go, okay, I see Red Hat's rated at this, NVD is rated at that. Uh, and we try to describe the differences as we can, right? Uh, the primary reason being, even for us, you have a, a particular component. If you have it, um, for example, in RHEL, which is a general purpose operating system, you can do whatever you want with it. We have no idea what you do. That same component, perhaps in OpenShift, where it's not a free-for-all, it's tightly constructed, mm -hmm. right? Every component has a particular purpose. A number of those are not user or attacker accessible. And maybe only one small part of what this overall package is capable of is actually being used. Mm. That part that's being used might not be impacted by a particular vulnerability. Like that code is actually leg legitimately never touched. On RHEL, we can't say the same thing. Right, because we don't know how you're using it. So we might rate something higher for RHEL and lower for OpenShift based on how it's uh, intended to be used in those products. 
NVD or a central database like that is never going to show that 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 fidelity of information. Only a vendor could do that, right? And I I take the approach, to being a vendor, mm -hmm. um, we know our products better than anybody else. If you trust us enough to use this in the first place, you should trust us enough to say when we're describing something a certain way, we kind of know what we're talking. Yeah, and that that's what we're doing, right? Because we're very uh, transparent with all the information that we provide yeah and we're not here to hide anything like we'd say we're not going to fix it it's out of support scope we are going to fix it we're affected like we we're very transparent about the state of that in our software uh, but we also don't guarantee that we're going to fix everything is that everything to me yeah well i think that's the building block of blocks of a you know, the relationship, a vendor, client relationship, a partnership, and even in real life, it's like we all have defects. We all have, as long as we're transparent and we, I mean, in the real world between people would, would apologize, but in the case of corporations or commercial entities, we patch things and provide solutions for. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's a good approach. Yeah. It. It's about building and maintaining trust. Yeah, correct. And you can only do that with transparency. Like with proprietary software is one example. You don't know if there's like moderate or low vulnerabilities that aren't being fixed. Like, I ponder this sometimes as to why people are going, oh yeah, look at all these moderates and low vulnerabilities and all this open source stuff. And then you look at all these vulnerability lists for proprietary software, they all seem to be critical and high. <laughs> and it's like, well, apples being apples, there's a whole bunch of low and moderate things on this side that aren't being called as such. And the reason why they can, I'll say, get away with it is because it's very opaque. Mm. It's not transparent at all. Like I can't see that. They can fix a security issue as a regular bug. They can fix it and just not tell you like this. Uh, I love the way that Apple puts their updates out for iPhones. This update fixed some security and bug fix things. You should update. And then you have to go somewhere else to get maybe a more detailed list a couple days or weeks later, right? Um, the proprietary vendors can do that. Open source vendors can't. And I think that's actually one of the, the really great trust-inspiring benefits of the Rasmus. I agree. Well, on that note, since it's a very positive um, description of one of the main benefits, if not the main benefit of open source, and since we are an open source uh, summit here in Vancouver, I think we can conclude this conversation unless you tell me that we've missed something you wanted to touch upon. Uh, no, I think you asked some pretty, pretty good questions there. Um, well, thank I, you. I think that uh, so you actually mentioned SPDX. Yes. Is how you're involved there. Uh, <laughs> we actually just, I think, uh, two weeks ago, started publishing our SPDX S-bombs as a tech preview beta kind of thing so that people can start consuming them and figuring out how to use them. Because my concern right now with S-bombs is we talk a lot about how to create them and how yeah. to make them properly. We're not talking enough about how we actually start utilizing them. Correct. And I think there's huge potential there but we haven't even tapped what that looks like because we're too busy trying to build something. And going back to that, uh, the checkbox-based security thing, um, idea, I'm concerned that people will be like, well, I have my S-bomb, so now I'm good. I've ticked the box. And they're missing all of this wonderful potential that could come from it. We just have to build some tools and, and some understanding around how to use these things. Well, since you brought it up, I wasn't planning, but um, what Jim Zemlin announced at the beginning of this, com uh, among other things, at the beginning of this conference is that SPDX has released a 3.0 release candidate. Mm -hmm. And one of the new features that comes with is a 
a better user experience in the sense that it is designed and is a breaking change because it's a new version, a semantic upgrade from 2.3 um, that brings in profiles, which is a superset of the basic SPDX, the one that is, uh, well, the, the, the basic checkbox, or design per use case. So if, you, if you're thinking of building an SBOM for your build process, then you've got a build profile to include more information relevant to that use case so that you, so that the person interested in consuming that SBOM, apologies, has the relevant information. But maybe that person is not someone interested in the build process, but rather in licensing, which is the original use case that SPDX used to solve. So then you can select or use the licensing um, profile and generate an SBOM that eventually will be consumed by a lawyer, a compliance manager, with the effective information that this person needs, right? Because otherwise they can be very consuming, uh, time-consuming, confusing, collect a lot of information that is irrelevant to the end user. So, to your to your concern, I think profiles is a and and this has been a concern. I mean, you, you're not on your own on that. Uh, so, yes, hopefully this this new feature of XPDX three tackles that problem because uh, we, we the release candidate has four profiles, but more coming down the line for AI um, for 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 security purposes and a myriad of use cases there. So, yeah. Nice. So I look forward to uh, checking it out further. I think that's a good, it's a good start. Thanks so much for being with us, Vincent. Well, thank you for having me.